Our passage today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. With God's help, if you would turn your attention to the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, And be content with your wages. This is God's holy and inspired word. You have to love the way Luke sets the stage here. The introduction to chapter 3 reads like a who's who list of the Roman Empire. You have Tiberius Caesar. You have Pontius Pilate, Herod. Uh, There are a couple of other tetrarchs. You have Annas and Caiaphas. All of the bigwigs are there, both on political and religious fronts. And then you've got John, the son of Zechariah, out in the wilderness. And if you know anything about John, you know that he's kind of a curious figure. There are a few things that are a little bit strange about John. For one, he likes to wear garments of camel's hair. He ties a big leather belt around his waist. He's one of the, on one of these new fad diets. He eats locusts and honey. Some of you would fit right in 
with him. You could not have a stranger contrast. And yet, what is the word of God telling us here? Who is the real heavy hitter in the passage? Where is the real headline? To whom does the word of God come? It's to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And if if you've been reading along thus far throughout the course of this narrative, you might be beginning to put some pieces together. You might find yourself starting to anticipate what the Lord might be up to here. You might find yourself thinking back to, to Mary's song in chapter one, verses 52 and 53, where it says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. God is on the move, he's working. And in characteristic fashion, he is doing so through the most least likely of vessels. He's using this bizarre figure out in the wilderness. The word of God comes to John and without any hesitation, he springs into action. Immediately, he goes into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make ready his path. In the ancient world, often you would have a herald who would come out before a king or someone of great importance, before some kind of a very significant dignitary, and they would go out ahead of them and make ready the way so that when that dignitary came, when that important figure came along, they would receive the kind of welcome befitting a person of their status. That's what John was. That's what John is doing here. He's a herald. He's someone who comes to prepare the way of the Messiah who was to follow right behind him. And he quotes from the book of Isaiah where it says, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then you have this this wonderful illustration of every valley, imagine valleys being filled. Every mountain and hill being pummeled being made low, providing for this straight, level path, all of the crooked places made plain. In the original context, Isaiah is talking about the Lord going before his his redeemed people on the return back from Babylonian captivity, providing them safe passage back home to the promised land. Now, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John takes up that same thing, theme as if to say, there's more to be written here in this story. There is a second, greater fulfillment in what the Lord is doing as he prepares the way for the incarnate Son of God. All flesh is about to see the salvation of God. He could just as well have said Jesus when he said the salvation of God. He's talking about the incarnate son of God when he talks about in whom salvation is found. Christ is coming and all flesh is going to see it. The point is not that 
Uh, every soul on earth is going to be saved, but that there is no one the saving power of the gospel is unable to reach. The inbreaking of Christ's power into the world isn't going to be limited to one particular person. It's not going to be limited to one tribe, to one kind of ethnic group, to one particular nation or region. The Lord is going to bear his holy arm before the eyes of all nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. If we could have been on the scene this day and had the privilege of hearing John the Baptist preaching, at first glance, you would have looked at this and you would have found this kind of outreach tremendously encouraging. You would have looked at the the sort of response that John was getting and you would have said, praise God. Look at the people who are gathering out to him in the wilderness. He's on this evangelistic campaign. He's preaching the good news. It tells us later on down in verse 18. People are responding to the word John has been given to preach. It's resonating with them. Crowds came out to be baptized and you have a multitude of people from every walk of life, Jews, tax collectors, soldiers, they're all there. They're all flocking out to, to, de- to the desert to hear this, this interesting man preaching. They're all responding to the word. It's everything that you could hope for, or so you would think. Look at what John says in verse seven. You brood of vipers. You may have heard preachers use words like brethren or beloved or brothers and sisters making appeals to you. But I would venture to guess that you have never been called a bunch of snakes. That's what John does here. He is not seeker sensitive. He preaches his message. Hordes of people come down the aisle, so to speak, and he rebukes them. But it's a loving rebuke. It's a loving rebuke. He says, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Snakes know to flee when a fire is coming, but these people who are likened to serpents have totally missed it when it comes to how deliverance from the wrath of God is known. A day is coming, there is a day fixed in which Christ is going to to come to judge the living and the dead. In the book of Malachi, it says, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? I understand we've barely gotten into this text, but let me ask you, friends, how would you answer that question? Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand When Jesus Christ appears, how do you answer that question? The people at hand, the people that John the Baptist is addressing, make this assumption in their minds that a quick dip in the water would do the trick. They say to themselves, well, I will go and I will get baptized and all will be well. And John says to them, that will not matter a whit at the last day, it won't do you any good 
when you come to stand before the Lord. It will not change in any way, shape or form, your eternal standing, the condition of your soul before Almighty God. 150 years ago, J.C. Ryle said, well, would it be for the church of Christ if it possessed more plain speaking ministers like John the Baptist in these latter days? A morbid dislike for strong language, an excessive fear of giving an offense, a constant flinching from directness and plain speaking are unhappily too much the characteristics of the modern Christian pulpit. Friends, that was 150 years ago. And look where we are today. It does not serve the souls of men to say you can remain as you are, just come and be processed through some external religious ceremony. Come and get your get out of hell free card and you can be on your merry way. No. What does John the Baptist say? He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The story is told of a Methodist preacher named Peter Cartwright in the 19th century. Cartwright once had the opportunity to preach to President Andrew Jackson. Before he got into the pulpit, someone came up to Cartwright, and just as the service was about to get going, this this individual came and he gave uh, Cartwright a warning. He told him not to go too overboard with things as he preached. And so when Cartwright got up to preach, he said, I understand Andrew Jackson is here. I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent. Afterward, the president came to him. He shook the preacher's hand. He said, sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. The president missed the point. But the point still stands. It does not matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what connections you have. The need is still the same, to have a true and living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that comes by faith in the Son. The kind of relationship with Jesus Christ that issues forth in a transformed life. John is saying to the crowd, where's the fruit? Where's the evidence? That's what the baptism of John pointed to. It signaled this renewed or even a brand new commitment to the Lord that gave rise to the accompanying evidence of a transformed life. It pointed to a wholehearted embrace of the one who was to come after John the Baptist and all that living after Jesus Christ entailed. Acts chapter 19 Uh, Verse four makes this very clear. It says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. The baptism of John was not one that says, here you can be saved by, by doing good works or even through your acts of repentance. That is necessary, but faith alone saves. Faith in Christ, Christ alone. 
He told the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Trust in Christ, rest in Christ, turn to Christ and away from sin. Only Jesus can save us from the wrath that is to come. Submitting to an external right, apart from that kind of wholehearted embrace that comes with with that accompanying fruit, that accompanying uh, evidence of regeneration, has no effect on your eternal destiny. You think about things like forgiveness of sins, newness of life, cleansing at the level of the soul. The things that we need the most, none of those things come by way of baptism. They come through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, as it's been said before, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always results in a transformed life. It always changes us. And so John urges his listeners to to prepare the way for the Messiah by way of this repentance baptism, but not without recognizing what it really represents. It was a baptism that was symbolic of the heart's return to God. It anticipated what you find in chapter three and verse 16. If you have your Bible open, you can look there. The inward washing that, that was to come With the Spirit's work in the hearts of men, John says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What does that mean? To be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's the fulfillment of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. There, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see there, the working of the spirit, what it results in, a careful adherence to God's will, to his law. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. The spirit works to reorder our desires. He works within the hearts of men to give us power to do the will of God, power to obey, power that we do not have in ourselves. John's baptism was the final precursor to the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. It was that penultimate step in the unfolding purposes of God. But you see what John is doing here as the people are responding. He is stemming the tide of false assurance. False assurance of faith. He is saying, do not put your hope in baptism. Do not put it in external rites or religious formalism. Turn to God in faith and repentance. And in the same breath, it's almost as if he is, he is reading their minds here. He says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Do you see the connection there? 
This comes in the very same vein as the first warning about baptism. You think he he is speaking to what would have been a predominantly Jewish audience here. And John says, don't even begin to think this way either. Don't even begin to think, well, we have Abraham as our father though. We we have this, this connection. No, John will have nothing of that. He's not pulling any punches here. But you see the temptation for Jews to rely on their their ancestry, on their heritage as the source of their confidence, to look to something that's without, to some sort of uh, external source of confidence as the grounds of, of your assurance. You latch on to something that you can see, something that you've done, something that's without, rather than a work of God that he has done within. And then you begin to content yourself with this idea that because I'm of a certain lineage or I grew up in a Christian household or because I have this in place in my life, it's just a given that certain things are true, spiritually speaking. John is trying to show them that all of this is just a house of cards. You don't have a leg to stand on. This is a spiritual crutch. And the Gospel of John, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees actually do this very thing. They come to, to Christ in, in John chapter 8, verse 39. They say, Abraham is our father. I want you to hear what Jesus says to them. He says this, if you were Abraham's children you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. What father is he speaking of there? He puts it explicitly a few verses down. You are of your father, the devil. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. No wonder John called the crowd a brood of vipers. We have Abraham as our father. John makes no allowances for that. Brothers and sisters, is there a temptation for us to think in this kind of way today? Certainly is. To put it frankly, the, the temptation that we have under consideration today is one that is directed chiefly at people like us. We're the serious ones after all, right? Isn't that what we tell ourselves? We have a high view of the word of God. We don't miss the worship of God. I'm there every time the doors of the church are open. I'm even there on Wednesday nights. I try to serve the Lord. I do everything that I'm supposed to do. I read my Bible. I grew up in a Christian family. I've said the sinner's prayer. I've escaped the wrath that is to come. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Beware of the temptation of drawing a connection between religious externalism and the salvation of God of assuming that because you have some kind of superficial attachment to the Christian faith that your eternal destiny is secure. The witness of this text is that 
children of God, they do not come into the covenant community either by birth or by baptism, or we could insert any number of other things here, but by their response to God's gracious offer of forgiveness, by a real turning within the heart, away from sin and unto God. So John is not concerned with getting as many baptized as he possibly can, as quickly as he possibly can. What really counts, what really matters, that we bear fruits in keeping with repentance, evidence, transformation, the necessity of a transformed life lived out before the presence of a holy God. John is making distinctions here. He is interpreting for us what it means to prepare the way of the Lord, to fill every valley, to bring all of the mountains low. Brethren, we are not talking, of course, about literal terrain. We're talking about the heart. We're talking about the mind. We're talking about the affections. It's a, th- that crookedness, the, the rough places, that's a picture of the inner man. And it illustrates the need for change, for for forsaking our sin. John is saying that the salvation offered in the coming of the Messiah brings with it a life that is altered, altered forever by the gospel. It is not just a matter of intellectual ascent. It is not just a matter of understanding. That's the first step. But it's not the end. It's not just a matter of baptism. That's an act of obedience. Something that you should do after you've put your faith in Christ. But it is not the end. What does life in the kingdom of God look like? It's a life of holiness. It's a life of fruitfulness. It's a life filled with the evidence of grace. It's to this that we are called. Church, there's an urgency to this call. There's an urgency to what John is saying. You see how he says, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The ax is poised. It is lifted up. It is about to fall. Jesus says in John chapter 15, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Again in Malachi chapter four, it says, behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. 
The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Are you bearing fruit, beloved? Is your life in keeping with repentance? What has God wrought in you? How is he transforming your life, even today? In verse 10, Luke directs our attention to those who have ears to hear. They have keyed in on what John is saying, and in a way that that must have been pleasing to the Lord, they are already thinking about what this would look like in their lives to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What would it look like? Not just to say, well, I get it. Okay, I understand the distinction, but really to rub this into the pores of my life, to apply this truth to the life I'm living today. How do I put this into practice? So if you look at verse 10, we find the crowds coming. They ask John, what then shall we do? Their hearts have been pricked. They're beginning to put things together. They're saying, if this is true, and it is, then certain things must follow. Help me understand what that is. But I know this, I cannot remain as I am. I cannot stay the way that I am. What then shall we do? It's in reply to this, John begins to lay out a couple of case studies. He gives them a sampling of what bearing fruit in keeping with repentance really looks like. If you look at verse 11, he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. We might think to ourselves, well, what does that have to do with repentance? It doesn't look like anyone has sinned here in this illustration. That's where we err. The word repentance, as many of you probably have heard before, has to do with a change of mind. It's used in many passages to describe a fundamental change in the way that we look at sin, a turning away, a new relationship to that which so easily entangles us, an eagerness to distance yourself from everything that's not pleasing to God, a sorrow, a dissatisfaction when you do fall short. A repentant man thinks about sin in a totally, radically, fundamentally different sort of way than an unrepentant man. But living a life of repentance has just as much to do with recognizing the things we failed to do as it does with confessing and forsaking our transgressions. The change of mind that is in view in this passage, you can see it here with me, it has a broader application than, than sins of commission. Bearing fruit in keeping with repentance includes the way we think about loving loving others. It affects the way we think about stuff. It transforms the way we think about our relationship to material things, for example. We don't grip money and possessions as tightly as we did before. We come to realize they are not the source of our security, and that in turn produces in us this readiness to give, this spirit of generosity within the heart as we remember, what do I have that I did not first receive? In in Isaiah 
Chapter 58, the Lord says, is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. 1 John 3, verse 17 and 18. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Love of neighbor is an essential part of a repentant life, John says. It's born out in simple acts of kindness. Do you have two shirts? I feel sure that that's the case for everyone sitting in this room today. Give one to another. Now we move from the general to the specific. Next come forward two groups of people most hated in Jewish society. First you have tax tax collectors. Apologies if there are any tax collectors here today. These are people who are responsible for collecting Poll taxes, land taxes, there's a kind of sales tax even in this day. The thing that made this situation especially interesting is that the Roman Empire would actually outsource uh, the, the, the task, the actual task of collecting the, the taxes to, to whoever was the highest bidder. And so you could go forward and you would uh, make your bid. Whoever was the highest bidder would want one, win the contract. They would pay the, the taxes in advance to the government. And then they would have the opportunity to lever, levy their own charges and surcharges and fees over and above at their own discretion. And so you can see how lucrative a job like this could have been. It did not take long before uh, the whole system was rife with corruption and abuse. Well, you have to love this. It was within the hearts of a group of these men, of tax collectors, that the word of God was doing its work as John was preaching. Isn't that wonderful? They come out to him And they they want to be baptized. And they say, teacher, what shall we do? And he says, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Don't steal. Don't abuse the authority that God has given. He doesn't tell them to stop collecting taxes, but to do so justly. He doesn't tell them, if you really want to serve the Lord, quit your job and go be the church treasurer. He doesn't say that. Instead, he says, live your ordinary life in a transformed, repentant kind of way. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance right where you are. Whether that's on the job, in the home, in the church, in your schoolwork, young people. In society, you live the life to which you've been called in a transformed way. Luther said that the whole Christian life was one of continual repentance. You work that out wherever you find yourself. Wherever God has planted your two feet, you live your ordinary life 
in a transformed way. Soldiers come and they ask him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Again, he does not call them to lay down their arms. These are Roman soldiers. They're part of an institution that brought down all kinds of horrors upon the the Jewish people, Tiberius. uh, He deported huge numbers of people, uh, of Jews from Rome. Philo describes Pilate's reign as, as, as one of robberies, wanton injuries, frequent executions without trial, and endless savage ferocity. And we could go on and on. But what's the call? Do not extort money from anyone. The word there, the word for extort means to shake violently. Today we would say, don't give them the shakedown. Don't see what you can squeeze out of them. Don't do that. Don't threaten or lie. On the positive side, be content. Be content. And so he covers the whole swath of humanity. The religious, the irreligious, ones who look like they've got it all buttoned up, people who come to church in their Sunday best, ones who already know they're in the category of the hated and the despised. They have a reputation for unrighteousness. And he says that there's one message that applies to them all. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Live your ordinary life in a transformed kind of way. Now, brothers and sisters, should you have the courage in Christ to examine yourself today and to say to him, what shall I do? What might he say to you? What specifically is he calling you to repent of? God has the power and the grace to change you today if you will only look to him. The scriptures say, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you this day. And God, we are brought once again to our knees as we think about the need for your grace. Grace to humble ourselves. Grace to see ourselves rightly, to see ourselves as we really are. God, to to forsake the sinking sand of our religiosity, our externalism, but to simply turn in faith and repentance and to look to Christ alone as our all-sufficient trust. Lord, I, I thank you for the good news of the gospel. I thank you for a perfect Savior God, we praise your name for one who lived a perfect life of obedience, who died a sinner's death. God, we give glory to you for him that today he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to you through him. 
Lord, we know that, that for the lost, every second that goes by is evidence of your kindness, your forbearance, your patience, all intended to lead them to repentance. And I pray that there would not be a soul here that would presume upon those riches, that would be tempted to delay from turning their hearts to you. God, together we all beg your mercy for our sins. We pray that you would grant us the grace to be asking in our hearts in this hour, what then shall we do? What, what shall I do? Help us, Lord. Help us to examine ourselves in light of your word. Lord, help us to live for you. Lord, show us the ways, the specific ways you are calling us to walk in repentance. We know that there is no amount of self-reformation that can produce the kind of fruit that we have talked about today. And so teach us to abide in you. For truly, apart from you, we can do nothing. God, by your grace, with your help, may we bear fruit and so prove to be your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.